Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast. I'm Sydney Johnson, stepping in this week for my colleague Jeff Young. Sometimes it's hard to imagine change. You're probably still getting used to the fact that my voice is a bit less familiar from your usual EdSurge co-hosts, for example. But it's even harder to imagine changing a 150-year-old system, such as higher education in the United States. There's bureaucracy, funding hurdles, and more bureaucracy. But much of that system we see and experience today was designed, and perhaps it can be again. At least, that's what Professor Kathy Davidson tells us in her new book, The New Education. Davidson is a professor and director of the Futures Initiative at CUNY's Graduate Center, where she studies and thinks a lot about cultural history and technology. In the book, she walks through many ways that higher education today was constructed and blueprinted, but even more, she makes the case for why an education overhaul can happen again, especially in the digital era. I spoke with Davidson recently about why she thinks a revision in higher ed is necessary, perhaps inevitable even, and how that is increasingly tied to the technological revolution faculty, students, and administrators are living every day. All that right after this. This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Next newsletter. Get the latest news and views about higher education technology each week. Sign up for the EdSurge Next newsletter. Just visit edsurge.com and click on subscribe. So thanks, Kathy, for chatting with me today. My pleasure. I'm really happy to be here. Cool. So I want to start off with kind of just where you got the name for this book. And and one thing that I notice you tend to do throughout the piece is put things into a historical context. Um, and just briefly, you know, I'd love for our listeners to get a sense of what you mean by the new education and kind of how that came about from uh, a man named Charles Eliot that you describe in the book. Sure. In 1869, a major um attention-grabbing article appeared in the Atlantic Monthly. It was a long article. It, it ran over two issues. And uh, it was by Charles Eliot, and it was describing everything that was wrong with the contemporary elite system of higher education in America, the Puritan College that had persisted from the 17th century on to 1869. And it basically is answering a question that a friend posed to him, what should I do with my boy? Um, the the uh, friend says, He's not cut out to be a minister or a teacher, a professor, and the education you have at Harvard is just for those things, and it doesn't prepare him for this new industrial world we're living in in 1869. Well, that was called the new education, and it was a manifesto, and it was so important that Harvard, which was going through a tumult at the time, um, hired this young man. He was only 34, Charles Eliot, the author of this essay, a young chemistry professor at MIT at the time, Harvard graduate um, who's teaching at MIT at the time, to be president of Harvard University. He's the youngest president in Harvard's history, and he stayed the longest. He, he was president for 40 years. And during that time, he worked with many other of his peers on turning the Puritan College into the modern American research university. And if I list is all the things that they either came up with or used in this new system, you, I wouldn't have to define a single one because they're everything we have today. Professional schools, graduate schools, majors, minors, distribution requirements, admissions exams, selectivity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But why now again, and you know, this moment in technological innovation, why do you think like right now, you know, makes us in need of, of this new education again? 
Well, as every high school student knows, what happened in the 19th century was industrialization, and that's never just technology. That changes all the relations of life. So urbanization, disruption of community, specialized um, jobs that were needed. If you raised a cow, I talk about um, uh, you know the difference in agriculture between raising one cow and being part of the whole agribusiness, agricultural system, and you need meat packers, you need uh, health inspectors, you need railroad engineers and railroad inspectors to ship the cattle. There's a whole world of people and new kinds of training for it. In 1999, April 22nd, 1999, the Mosaic 1.0 browser was made available to all of us. And suddenly anyone who had an idea could communicate that idea with anyone else in the world who had an internet connection. That was a human power that nobody had ever had before mm. on such a massive scale. And it changed all of our labor relations. And what I'm saying is Charles Eliot was the leader in a new education for the 19th century that had been so radically changed. All the aspects of work and life had been radically changed. And we need a new education now for a world in which anyone's job can disappear. I mean, you can be a taxi driver and think, well, how can they disappear my job? And then suddenly you have driverless cars and Uber uh, and your livelihood goes out the window. That's been true of journalists. Uh, the law profession has changed. Almost every profession has been changed in very, very dramatic ways mm -hmm. uh, in the last 20 years. Some of them have disappeared. New ones have com come into being, and all of them have been changed. Everything, how we interact with each other in social life has changed. Yeah. yeah. And our education system still has many of the features that Elliot designed for a different precise historical moment. Yeah. So one thing that I wonder about when I'm reading this is it seems very like there was there was this model of higher education that Charles Eliot instituted. And then there's there's this model or, or maybe, you know, we need a new model. What that will look like is, you know, TBD. But, um, you know, what about this idea that higher education has consistently been evolving? I mean, there are so many different models um, for profit, nonprofit, small small colleges, um, community colleges. But what about just that idea that, you know, it, it's been sort of evolving this whole time and it, the system probably doesn't look a lot like even what Charles Eliot had designed it to just because there's so many different systems that have come about since then. So I think that that's a super important point. And um, my biggest argument with most books on transforming higher education is they come up with a unitary model. And I absolutely think the most important thing any institution can do is can is be introspective, understand who its audience is, who its students are, what it's doing well to serve those students and what it's not, and make changes relevant to that institution. So on an individual level, I think that's the single most important thing that anyone can do. On a larger social level, um, I talk. The one reason that I both talk about Charles Eliot and what he does at Harvard and what his colleagues do at the elite universities is, and I also talk about the land grant universities, most of which had presidents that came from that same background as Eliot, and so replicated, even for a radically different audience, um, many of the same features that they learned about from the changing. Um, system that Elliot um, was representing. Mm. I also write about the founding of co community college and how important uh, community colleges are now and how Harvard, Stanford, any university can learn from the mission of the contemporary community college. So yes, there are many universities and they've all been evolving. What has been slower to evolve are the hyperstructures 
um, under which universities exist. And I would say that the thing, the big ones are uh, credentialing, mm. accreditation, and grading. Um, it's remarkable to me that every day it seems there's some new rating system in America, and one system will say Stanford and Harvard are number one and two, and a place like um, where I teach now, like City University of New York, will be way at the bottom of the list because we're not producing students who are making a million dollars or who had perfect AP, um, SAT scores. Mm -hmm. Then tomorrow another list comes out, and it's social mobility. Well, then six of CUNY schools – Baruch and several other schools are in the top 10, and Harvard, Princeton is way at the bottom because although it produces students who have the highest income level when they leave, they also have the highest level income level when they come in. What's important about that is that we somehow think we can make one size fits all in a ranking system. I mean, why should Baruch College and CUNY be even judged against Harvard? What is the logic of that? We live in a very uh, complex society with many different ways of entry and many different skills that we all need. Why are SAT exams so important? Why do we have a ranking system that's partly based on the cumulative SATs of the students you select? Why is selectivity rather than inclusion what we consider important? Why is a major and how many classes and what kinds of classes um, you offer in a major the grounds for accreditation rather than flexibility and giving your students the ability to mix and match majors in a way that better suits the world we live in than many of the traditional majors that were designed indeed 40, 50, 60, 70, or 80 years ago. So it's almost like you're making the argument not necessarily for the new education, but new education's plural and, and sort of different systems that aren't necessarily pitted against each other or, or standardized in one sort of um, U.S. news <laughs> ranking system, I guess. Right. Exactly. Actually, I believe the new education is a multifarious education that recognizes many different kinds of mm -hmm. intelligence, uh, many different kinds of skills. Um, at one point, I talk about, um, I think I still have it in the book, I think it was still, I wasn't edited out, about being at a meeting where somebody said to me, you're an education reformer, so am I. I'm going to take our four-year college, four-year university. This is a major top ten university. I'm going to take our four-year major and turn it into a three-year major. Isn't that incredible? And I was like, actually, there's a four-year major is arbitrary, so is a three-year mm -hmm. uh, major. There are some fields that might take six years. There are other fields that might take a year and a half. I mean, why do we have to have one size fits all? The new education is precisely about thinking about the different ways we can customize um, grading, assessment, credentialing, ranking, institutions, programs, what we offer, how we teach, who we reach, and how we reach them, um, and customize that in ways that are relevant to put this, and here's the key part, that put the student rather than the credential at the center of the uh, educational revolution. I would say if there's one quintessential feature of 19th century, late 19th century education, it puts the credential, the output, the productivity, the measurable result as the um, end product of education. I'm saying in student-centered education, Graduation is the beginning, not the ending. What you really should be training students for is not so they have an, uh, uh, they graduate cum laude, but so that they lead a productive life. You're training them not for their first job, 
people for the disaster that may happen when their first job in a, is in a career that suddenly disappears. Yeah, and that's a good transition to, to a, a part of the book that I really wanted to get into. And you talk a lot about um, technology and innovation and the new tools that students have, that, that professors have. Um, I mean, you spend two chapters explicitly addressing this, but I think it's, it's a theme that kind of appears throughout the book. Um, and you, you speak to, in one of these chapters, about those who are turned off by technology and, and those who are, you know, maybe overly excited. But for the people who are, are convinced, at least, that there's, there's a use for technology in the classroom, maybe they don't, maybe they're not thinking it's the answer, but, but they're willing to try or they are trying. What advice do you have for these people who are trying to thread that needle? Thank you. That's a best, great question, and I actually give many, many workshops every year for people in that situation, not people who are the technophobes for whom anything having to do with technology is terrifying or horrible. You know, they often mask their terror by saying, it's bad. You know, it makes you stupid, it makes you lonely, all of those kinds of things. And not for the people who say, oh, yeah, we're going to technologize everything. We're just going to put everything online and get rid of the professors entirely. Maybe we get rid of students, too, you know, have machines teaching machines. Um, I like to talk to people who are inquisitive but haven't gotten there yet. And um, most of the things I do in my workshops have to do with I use index cards and pencils. Um, and I do interactive exercises with people partly to make it clear that technology is never – any effective technology, any useful, important, effective technology is never a thing. It's a way of interacting uh, and the technology is merely a tool to a different kind of interacting. So what I try to do is I do a series of exercises where the only technology is machine-made paper and machine-made pencils, and we do interactive exercises. And I show them what difference there is between one-way communication, the professor standing at the front of the room or on a screen, either in a classroom or in a discussion where everything is still flowing through that, that professor, and a more in what's what educators call an inventory technology where every student in the classroom responds to um, some kind of a prompt, discusses it with another student, works through a essay that they or an idea they might want to present to the group and then presents that to a group either in a, orally if it's a small classroom or on something like a collaborative Google Doc if it's a big classroom, but where every student on every question has a say and really has to grapple with what they're mm -hmm. thinking about. Um, having to do with a different kind of question. What's different about that is it rearranges the relationships of knowledge producer and knowledge consumer in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And the person that really has to learn that this works and that they're not being irresponsible or lazy, in fact, it t tends to take as, every bit as much work, but it's a different relationship to power, is, of course, the professor. Mm. That's 101. That's how to do technology in the classroom 101. And we use things like, you know, so we start with index cards, then we use things like a Google Doc to show people what a, techno what a collaborative technology can do in your classroom and how students are a lot, can have different voices. Then we use private websites and public websites, what you can do and what you can't do. Uh, a blog that's not used thoughtfully is every bit as stupid as a pop quiz that's not used thoughtfully. You know, in other words, how to make this really about every student's learning and expressing themselves in the most important and cogent ways. It's also about learning what the terms of agreement are for any technology they use. Um, I have my students do Google Docs, and then I have them write what they think are the terms of agreement for the document, the technology they've just signed. And then 
signed on to, and then I have them go look at the terms of agreement for Google and make a comparison. So they're learning not only how to use technology, but how to think about technology critically, to think about the ways educational systems can sometimes give away their student privacy uh, in proprietary technologies or even in open source technologies, and what those issues of privacy and security are, not just in their classroom, but in every aspect of their lives. Mm -hmm. I think there's still there's still a couple other barriers here, right? Like you um, use the example of when you had the students come in um, and you asked, you gave them 90 seconds to write down an answer for who invented the printing press. Um, and then you gave them a second chance where they could use devices, they could collaborate and the answer changed. And that's a, that's a really interesting case, but I'm wondering, you know, for a lot of different um, education settings, you know, a couple of different barriers pop up. One, would students even have devices on them to do an activity like that? Two, would they have the the skills to even know where to look? I mean, we talk about Wikipedia a lot, which I think a lot of people do know do know about. But I think that there's still a lot of you know digital training that needs to happen from the student end too. I think that this idea of you know, millennials all being digital natives, a lot of people are talking about how, you know, we can't make these assumptions about about students and, you know, they might need just as much training as faculty. Which is exactly why I do that assignment. Because if you just assume that your students know how to use technology, they're going to use it badly. We all do. We all are, I mean, we, I'm on the board of Mozilla and we know this from our Mozilla users and many, many user studies. If you give people a tool, they'll often stick with that tool to the bitter, bitter end and not even not do updates, They'll, you know, we all wanted we all wanted to come easily to us. So when I do things like um, the the uh, print, the the who invented the printing press, I'm doing it for two well many reasons, but two of the most important are one. Everyone first writes down Gutenberg. You know, they just immediately write down Gutenberg, and then I often do a challenge where I say, okay, if you're sure you know the right answer, you wrote it down in two seconds, not ninety. You wrote it down quickly. You're sure that's the right answer. Hand it in now, and you've got an A for the class. Nobody ever hands in the card. They, as soon as I say that, it's like all the automatic uh, responses that come with multiple choice testing. Gutenberg would be the right answer on any multiple choice test. Go out the window, and they, this whole other critical faculty comes um, uh, comes to the fore. And I want that both in my classrooms and as they use technology. So then I say. Use whatever devices you have. We know about 85% of students in college today have access at least to a cell phone. In fact, far more. Um, I'm at a university. Um, I do many projects with some of our community colleges where 80% of our, 70 to 80% of our students have income levels below $25,000 a year. This is in New York, the most expensive city in America. So these are people from way below the poverty line. Even those students often have access to cell phones but not to any other kind of device. So I'm a big believer in you know, sharing devices in a classroom, um, using whatever technology you have at hand, using the cheapest, freest, open technology you have. If all you have is one desktop, having students crowd around that desktop, there are many ways you can do it. And I often will say, so in the Gutenberg assignment, I'll say, who did invent the printing press? And if you start at Wikipedia, don't end there. Follow the sources. Uh, Wikipedia actually comes extremely well documented. Find out what you can find out about who put that those answers in there. Why is it Bisheng? What happened in 11th century um, Korea? What is the Jinji? How did the printing press come through the entire 
Silk Road and was changed along the way and came to the West along with spices and mathematics and um, all kinds of things that we often take credit for in the West, but in fact were invented elsewhere. So they're learning about a new global network of knowledge. They're learning how to use technology. They're using how to collaborate on whatever technology is at hand. And they're learning to question their own answers. That the fast, and this, I did that experiment at Duke where my students all were, you know, had perfect SAT scores uh, and went to the best kinds of public schools and or private schools before they came to Duke. These were well-trained students. They thought Gutenberg was the right answer until I raised a question and then they all knew that they'd been fed a bill of goods. They all knew that they'd been having a greatly redacted view of history that only told one part of the story. And that to me is the most important thing of technology is we have um, even on Wikipedia, which now the National Archives says is a valid source. So, you know, it's, a, it's, it's long past the days when Wikipedia was suspicious. It still can be tampered with, it still can be hacked, but, it's, but there, it still has a large degree of credibility. Um, even in those worlds, we know, uh, we're knowing now that when the world is able to contribute, the view of history is not the one that's A, B, C, D, or all of the above. It's a really much more complex history than we're getting in our standard again, 19th century versions, enlightenment versions of who invented the printing press, who's the fount of all knowledge, and so forth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you also paint, like you have the two chapters, um, one about technophobes and, and, and technophilia. So, and, and when you go through those, you know, I think you validate points on either side. So it seems like you kind of straddled the two. So one, I want to ask if that's true. Do you do you consider yourself sort of straddling the two? And is that accurate? And also, meanwhile, you know, I think a lot of people cast higher ed as, as being very slow and resistant to adopting technology. Is that caricature like still still valid? Or do you think that higher ed is a little bit more in the middle as well? So again, those are great, great questions. Uh, on a personal level, um, you know, I'm kind of a geek, so um, although I'm um, also dyslexic, and so there's simple things that I find difficult. I, you know, when Udacity first came out, I thought I'm going to see what Udacity's like. So I, t I took the class in HTML5. So I guess that makes me a technophile. If you're just for fun experimenting with learning a new computer language, and I am on the board of Mozilla, so you know, there's only seven or eight of us on the board. So I guess it would be very false to say I'm a technophobe. At the same time, I'm extremely, I'm somebody who's done a lot of research, um, and this isn't necessarily the case for academics who aren't in the field of education, but I've done a lot of research on effective learning. So I'm extremely skeptical of simply thinking technology solves a learning problem. Um, I read an article recently by one of the educators at Google who said, why should my daughter learn differential equations anymore when she could just put that into a box and uh, you know, on Google and get an answer. Well, she's not getting an answer. She is getting an answer, but she's not learning how to do um, to think like a mathematician. Um, learning is. He was saying things like we can automate learning. In fact, definitionally, on a cognitive level, and my last book was on cog on cognitive science and attention. The one thing, almost definitionally, learning is not automatic. If something's automatic, it's a habit. You're not learning from your habits. Habits are efficient precisely because you don't have to learn from them. You don't have to think about them. Learning exactly is going from a state, one state to a new state. So everything about learning is the opposite of automation. Mm. So any kind of learning tool 
that set, that tries to sell itself to educators or parents as this is going to make learning easy because it's going to make it automatic is in fact undermining the very trials, missteps, learning from trial and error that we all know. Common sense tells us, and we know this from teaching our kids or learning anything new ourselves, we all know making mistakes, failing, learning how not to fail, um, going at it again, trying a different method, that's what learning is, whether I'm learning how to play tennis or studying for my driver's exam, you know, right? I don't, I, it, it, you can't automate it. You just can't automate it. You also asked about um, education adopting things. I think in some ways, rather than edu education being too, sl too slow, it adopted a lot of vast and very, very expensive um, content management and learning management systems way too early and without nearly enough questioning. So, for example, some of them um, are getting better, but many of them, um, and I would say Blackboard is one of them, were originally, and I don't, I haven't used it for several years, so I, maybe it's much, much better now. But when I was first using it, I thought, wow, this tool was is great for surveillance, and it's terrible for collaboration. Mm. It's That was structural. It was in the programming. It was in the software. Um, that made it a tool that was based on a 19th century idea that the professor's idea is to check up on, to, to catch students in what was wrong, and again, all of that emphasis on, on failing rather than um, emphasis on working together and succeeding. And that was built into the tools, and once something's hardwired into tools, it's very hard to get out of it. It's hard for humans to unwire themselves and say, oh, right, I did it that way for a long time, but that's not the best way. I need a different tool. So um, so I'm very ambivalent about educational technology because mm. so much of it was um, almost bought frantically in order to seem like people were modern and not necessarily used with intelligence mm. and care. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up um, automation and automating because that, there's a quote towards the very end of the piece that um, I just want to read and, and talk to you about a little bit more. So you say the Silicon Valley has helped create, indeed consists of, offshoring, automating global super corporations, and naturally has done little to identify this development as a looming social catastrophe or to propose real solutions to it. Those solutions must address higher education reform, but they must also start within higher education. Now, I think this is a really interesting line because earlier in the piece you also warn of some dangers that can come up with things like unbundling, where, where universities are um, privatizing different branches, or you know just dangers that could come, risks that are associated with adopting certain technologies around privacy data. So what does that really look like for like a higher education ed tech company who um, you know, steps into this space? What does that look like then? Again, it looks different for different institutions and for different uses, but certainly um, among the things that have to be considered are whether the tool actually is, is, is serving its function, if it's supposed to be a tool that's promoting learning or promoting collaboration, what are its affordances? Um, are the affordances like um, uh, uh, that, that also allow for exploitation? Who's who is profiting from the data that students are putting into that system? If it's a system that allows, um, has user service, user terms of agreement, such that the data about individual students is going into some massive corporate capitalist commercialized structure so that my seventh grader is 
um, when they go onto their iPad to play a video game or do a search, they're getting a specially tailored um, uh, commercial that's designed for them, which is different than a television commercial because the company making the commercial knows private information about the habits of that particular user before that user is old enough to be consenting and they could be selling um, some kind of a product specifically designed for um, that user. I've heard the story about the talking Barbie doll. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, where the Barbie doll actually asks questions of its um, uh, of the child. Who, what, what's your name? What's your middle name? What's your address? Where do you live? What's your phone number? And that, but if you say, if the child then says, then what's, what are the terms of service for this Barbie doll? The Barbie doll shuts off. Now, I don't, that may be apocryphal, but it, and it may be a metaphor rather than actually true. I have not investigated to see if that's a true story, but it's a good metaphor for the biggest ills of educational technology, which is exploiting rather than learning and teaching and helping. Mm-hmm. Well, what strikes, me, what strikes me in this quote is how you say it must start within, um, that the companies must start within higher education. So like, what do you mean, what do you mean by that? And is, is that something that could be risky for someone who's trying to preserve a liberal arts education? Oh, I don't necessarily mean the companies start within it. The needs, the desires, the um, outlining of what would be a good product, what would be something that would facilitate actual learning, what the demands are. Um, higher education, I think it's very important that higher education take those things seriously and it not just be the IT people at a university that are making those decisions, mm. that it be actually students and faculty that are involved in thinking through is this a technology that works for us? Um, what is our responsibility to and from this technology? Um, how should it be deployed? Um, and uh, in what way should it be deployed? That's different than actually being responsible for making the technology. It's more being a responsible user. It's like a, uh, getting a driver's license to take a car. You don't have to build the car, but you have to have, before you step into that car and could kill somebody with it or, or cause mayhem with it, you should be able to know that you have to know the rules of the road. You have to know what's the safety features of the car. And you have to be able to demand or have agencies that know more than you and that you trust sticking up for you to making make sure that this car has airbags and has brakes that work and isn't lying on its, its um, uh, gas consumption. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. So um, there are many levels of scrutiny and use and participation in decision making that are important. Rather than I'm not necessarily saying that schools themselves should be involved in making technology. Mm-hmm. Although I've been involved in some great ones. I mean, I've been involved some in some very very interesting experiments where students have actually um, modded technology and done wonderful things. But the important thing was not the technology. It was challenging and trusting students to take a technology in a direction nobody knew in advance. And Mm. that, to me, is what the Internet age is about. We're in totally, who would have guessed eight months ago that the most powerful nation on earth would be run by somebody who wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning and tweets things without consulting anybody that could lead to World War III, nuclear war, you know, anything else. I mean, that was not in anybody's consciousness of what was even possible in the world. We're living in a world where an individual with a tool can have, whether it's the president of the United States, a hacker, 
uh, uh, evil person or the best human being on earth can do immeasurable impact because of the natures of the tools. And we have not in, in reinvented higher education for that challenge that faces all of us every day in every aspect of our lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like it's going to be the challenge going forward for sure. Well, thank you, Kathy, so much. Um, again, we were talking about the new education, Kathy Davidson's most recent book. And Kathy, thanks so much again for chatting with me. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much for this series and for inviting me to it. Thanks for listening to the EdSurge On Air podcast. Please follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And send suggestions about who you think we should hear from or other comments to feedback at edsurge.com. This episode is edited by me, Sydney Johnson, with the help of my colleague, Mary Jo Matta. Please join us next week for another conversation on the future of education. Thanks for listening.